You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. There's a moment in this episode where death is described like a party that's waiting for us. I don't know if it's true, but gosh, I hope it is. For now, though, welcome to your creatively conscious mortality party here on You're Going to Die, the podcast. I have been eagerly anticipating re-releasing this conversation you're about to listen to. I actually had it in 2021, and it's well-timed to re-release it now for a lot of reasons that I'll get to. But first, I want to give you just a little bit of background for what you're about to hear. I met Stacey K. Haynes at her mom's deathbed. Quite literally, I feel like that may have been the first moment I saw her may have been when she was sitting with her dying mother. We went to her house, our nonprofit has a program called Songs for Life. We send musicians to play for the dying and their friends and family to write songs, legacy songs about their life and their death. And Morgan Bolander, the program manager for Songs for Life, and I went and met Stacy and sat with her mom and Morgan played music. We sang to her. I've sat with a lot of dying people in my life, and this is probably one of the most memorable moments I've ever shared at a deathbed. You should check out our program, Songs for Life. Just go to songsforlife.info online, and you can get there through our website, yg2d.com. We're offering that program online and in person here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So a lot of what you'll hear in this episode is about Stacy's mother's death, her mother, MK, and how Stacy held that space at that final stage of life for MK. Now, a little bit about Stacy before I tell you why having Stacy and this conversation back on the show right now matters, because there's something you should check out and register for. First of all, Stacy has been experimenting at the intersections of personal and social transformation for the last 30 years through the work of somatics, trauma healing, embodied leadership, and transformative justice. She is the author of The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing, and Social Justice, and Healing Sex, a mind-body approach to healing sexual trauma, which has been translated into German, Japanese, and Spanish. Stacy is a leader in the field of somatics, focusing on how it can bring transformative capacity to social and climate justice movements and help to heal the impacts of trauma and oppression. She runs programs and teacher training and partners with social change organizations. She is the co-founder and prior executive director of Generative Somatics, a multiracial social justice capacity building organization. In 1999, Stacy founded Generation 5, a nonprofit whose mission is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations using transformative justice approaches. 
Why does this matter now? It's because not only will you get to listen to this conversation and get all the things from Stacy in that way, but you also should go to her website, which I'll put in the show notes, and sign up for the online course, The Politics of Trauma, Embodied Transformation, Social Action, and Love. No one is turned away for lack of funds, so definitely find out more and join us for their virtual open house on September 21st, and you can register for that on their website. Again, all of these links will be available in the show notes. But if you don't like digging through show notes, just go to stacyhaines.com. That's S-T-A-C-I. H-A-I-N-E-S dot com. Please check out Stacy's work, get Stacy's books, and sign up for this online course. Before that, welcome to this episode of You're Going to Die the Podcast with Stacy K. Haynes. It was in July of 2019 that we found out mom was terminal. And um you know, in, in March of 2019, me and my two sisters took her on a trip anywhere she wanted to go and like in quotes where we could afford. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first she's like, let's go to Tibet. And I'm like, that's nice, mom. How about, how about, <laughs> how about more local? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so she chose Moab, Utah, and we mm. grew up in Colorado. So it's a state that we're in a lot of relationship with the land there. Mm-hmm. And we went to Canyonlands and Arches and my sisters, my mom and I, just us had not been away together in like 23 years because we'd always been with kids Mm -hmm. and various versions of cousins. And this was a very, very special trip. And, um, mom was totally fine. There was nothing wrong with her. We hiked, we laughed a lot. We cooked food. We, there's historical stories from that trip, but so she's fine in March. She's 76. We're like, God, we got 20 years with her easy. And then by July, she's diagnosed as as terminal. So she had three brain originating glioblastomas. And in July, we're trying to face together, like face, okay, you are dying. We likely have months. The average life expectancy after diagnosis is 10 months. And, you know, mom also in the overwhelm and also the effect of the brain tumor, she would forget she was dying. And this is one of the things that was so intense is I probably had to tell her, I don't know, 30 times, 35 Mm. times that she was dying. And she took it like new news. Mm. Oh man. I didn't know that, Stacey. That is, yeah. That was super hardcore. It was very hard cause like, oh my God. And also, you know, I have to, we'll talk about the doctors, but you know, doctors are very afraid to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, isn't it your all's freaking job <laughs> and not the kid's job to tell her she's dying. Yeah, but yeah. it seemed like the oncologist couldn't actually figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the radiologist, amazing. He told us he was super great. So it's July. We know she's dying. And mom is getting her arms around it and I'm sitting with her in her like rent control department in Santa Monica, right? I'm sitting with her and she goes, okay, okay. I want to talk to you about dying. I'm like, awesome. Let's talk about dying. And she said, well, I don't want to die a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, this is so classic, my mother. And, you know, yeah. she could have died a bitch because she had it. She had an angry side for and she earned her angry side. Please. She she lived a lot of trauma in her life. But then I said to her, I was like, awesome. You don't want to die a bitch. How do you want to die instead, mom? And she said, I want to die with loving kindness. And I said, okay, is that for real? Is that your vision? Because I'm going to put all my power and all my resources on my whole community behind you dying with loving kindness, if that's what you want. And she said, that's what I want. And that gave us the vision about how to be and how to be with her and how to basically try to set up our time as best we could toward that outcome. But that's what you walked into, like, she moved mm. to my house in October because I knew I had the community that could support that vision. Mm-hmm. And you walked into that intention and you all were totally part of manifesting that experience for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know we're going to, we're going to do a lot of like back and forth between this yeah. personal story and how it connects to your work in the world with somatics and healing and social justice. So forgive me, all these things I want to keep like close to the heart. So I'm not, I'm not leaving that, but I'm thinking what came up for me after reading your book is the declaration. Was that a conversation you guys had the self declaration? You talk about that in your books, the politics of trauma. Um, Was that something she kind of got to on her own, that declaration, or was there some kind of ongoing way that you, helped her say at some point, like, what are you putting, how are you putting into words? Like, start with this. Yeah. Like, what are you creating for this dying? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember uh, talking I, about that? I, I, I love that you connect this because it really is a part of the embodied transformation work or the somatic work is because it's, it's a non-pathologizing approach to change. Like something doesn't have to be wrong with you. Mm-hmm. which is what I love about it. It's like resilience based. It's more like we, <laughs> she's riding the line a little bit with the, like, I don't want to be a bitch. <laughs> totally. Right. You know? Exactly. Like, exactly. Okay, well, let's focus on what you do want to be, which is exactly what I'm trained to do is like, mm. yes, we can all list what we don't want anymore. Mm. Right. It's like, you know, I mean, just to make it totally current time is I do not want the U S police to continue to murder black people. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like defund the police. I'm like so excited because it started this conversation about what do we want instead? We want social workers. We want people to have a way out of poverty. We want people to show up who know how to do conflict resolution and diffusion. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, of course, we want to end white supremacy, which is a very big project that's been going on for 400 years, no longer. (laughs) But exactly. So a declaration is like, what's the vision of the future you Mm -hmm. want? And mom knew about somatics and she knew about my work and she knew about like visioning and, and she was being super real when she was like, I am facing dying and I could be an angry, resentful person when I die. And she didn't want to be that. Mm. So my question of what do you want instead was exactly us co-creating a declaration. Mm-hmm. And then we unpacked it just like in that chapter. And I was like, okay, mom, what brings you love? What brings you compassion? Who do you want to spend your time with? And how do you want to spend your time? And we, cre- we came up with mom's lists of joys mm. and we printed it. And we made it pretty and we pasted it up and all my siblings had it. And we all knew this is mom's list of joys. Mm. 
and that's how we tried to spend our time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm I'm in tears again. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm just wishing <laughs> there's ways I've let go or accepted or forgiven myself or integrated how it was when my mom died. Yeah, and um, wishing now having those feelings of how much it would have meant to say you're dying. You're going to die. And how are you? <laughs> you're going to die. It's yep. funny, this thing called you're going to die. Yep. <laughs> I've never really connected it to what I wanted to say to my mom. Like, you're going oh. to die. Like, can we just talk about it? Yes. She'd said once on when I moved home during the last year to s- stay with her before she died. Uh-huh. Um, she asked me if she was going to die. Yeah. In a very like childlike moment, a lot of a lot of moments I had like that, you know, yeah. in that last couple of years, but I didn't, you know, I was just young and I didn't, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't say it, but to just really feel the beauty and power of that, imagining you guys talking and writing it down and the creative act of it. And, yeah. and then like putting it, externalizing it into a thing to like be outside of us that other people would see and mm. that reminder and accountability. What a powerful, powerful thing for you two to share. And also like acknowledging what it meant for your, the work ahead for you. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I see you say, you say, let's talk about, I'd like to talk about the shock and ceremony. Yeah. And I know shock's a, a specific word and I'd like to hear you speak to that if you have more to say, but I just really appreciate, okay, this is beautiful. And it was beautiful that you had this moment, but it also asked so much of both of you and so much of you as her daughter and the one that committed to caring for her. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Cause I want to be like a, I just want to be real. That's really Mm -hmm. what we practice being. And, you know, I had a joke with mom, um, and then, um, Sorry, a lot of things are flooding in at once. So let me I just know. kind of be sure, pressing like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rush. Take Ooh, yeah. Yeah. It was hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my mom. I'm losing my mom, you know, and I'm losing my mom. Like, you know, you all, we all make up these stories about dying and my, her dad died at like 96. And so what we made up is like, nah, mom's going to be in her 90s. She's built just like him. Mm. And that was just a story. And it was fucking wrong. Yeah. And um, the other thing, and I, I'm going to say this out loud to you. <laughs> but the other thing is like, I'm super pissed off that my mom died before my dad. Mm. And my dad was mean and my dad was violent. Mm. And so was her dad. And I'm like, why do they live so long? And why do the women who are at the effect of their violence die so young? Mm -hmm. And my grandma did too. My grandma died at 67 and she was an amazing person. And I'm like, we, I, I want to change the rules of the game and let the nice people live a long time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least in my family. (laughs) I I have, I I won't be very detailed about my response to that, but I have my own versions of that for sure. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the shock was we were just hiking in Moab. We're also connected to the land in Colorado and in Utah and in New Mexico 
and spent a lot of time in it together. I feel so grateful for that. And then my mom starts dropping things in April. And then at the end of the month, she, she fell and got a black eye and we, we got a non-contrast MRI and her skull was fine, but they didn't look at her brain. And then by the end of May, I'm like, mom, I think you're having a stroke. And we got her to the hospital and she had three brain tumors growing fast and strong. Mm-hmm. And then of course it was brain surgery and then it was, you know, what kind of cancer it is. And then it's, you're going to die. So the shock, it was just, there were lots of levels of shock. Shock of losing her was biggest. Mm-hmm. Shock of how much the system, the medical system, the social supports are not set up to support poor people. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how much I worked my ass off with IHSS and Social Security and UCLA to just try to get my mom the care that she needed. And bah, the mm-hmm. shock of grieving. Um, I mean, I don't even think I've gotten to, I've really been getting support around grieving and I don't think I've gotten to process the rage I have at the systems yet. <laughs> and we don't need to use this podcast for it, but I do want to name how real it is. My mother grew up in Boulder City, Nevada, downwind from the nuclear test site. And one of the things the Boulder City community would do in the 50s when they were testing nuclear bombs above ground in the 40s and 50s is that's what they do on a on, on, on a on a test day is the community would go watch the mushroom cloud and then mm. all the wind from it would blow over all of them. And to me, I'm like, my grandma died of cancer and nobody could mm-hmm. figure out why. Both my uncles have had cancer. My mom just died of cancer. And I'm like, I wonder how many of the people who grew up downwind from the nuclear test site are dead because of cancer. Mm-hmm. But it's so many years later, and what can we do about it, mm-hmm. right? Then they moved to testing below ground, and then, of course, it's in the water. So that's one just connection. Um, <clears throat> another that, um, you know, I am, I'm white. I have a BA, I have a college education, <clears throat> and I had to interface with Social Security, with um, um, Medicare, Medi-Cal, with uh, basically helping mom mom reapply for food stamps, which they call CalFresh now, mm-hmm. and with something called IHSS, which is in-home support services. These are all supposed services to help poor people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be at home and be able to afford to be at home. Cause I also realize none of us have extra money. I'm working full time. My sisters are working full time. And now we got mom. And I mean, Ned, I, I, I can't tell you how many dozens and dozens of dozens of hours. My younger sister and I spent on the phone on hold getting 18 different promises from IHSS about what was happening and why our application wasn't going through. I I have notes. I can't even tell you this is where I want to explode because we're trying to get me certified as an IHSS worker because now I am decreasing my work and spending my time taking care of mom and we can get paid from the state for it. I literally eventually 
I went to a training in July, was supposed to be accepted by August. In November, I've been taking care of my mom since June. My application is still not in. Mm -hmm. And it is only because I have a friend in LA who knows the system because she's a nurse at poor hospitals who called three friends who found an IHSS worker who she could introduce me to who promised he would figure out what was wrong. The whole time, it's because someone hadn't entered my social security card information. (laughs) The whole time. Mm. Meanwhile, I'm reapplying. I'm going to a training again. The Mm. amount of hours it took to get any support. And I'm like, I'm white. And I have a college education. I was spending so much time down at in Oakland. It's called Eastmont Mall, where all those services are 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 present and you go in in person because it's pre-COVID. I, I just can't even tell you the system is built to keep poor people sick and it's mm-hmm. built to keep poor people poor. Mm-hmm. And if I can I go off on one more? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, are you, me should process. I stop you for you? No, no. Was that a call okay. for help? Like, stop me. Okay, good. Go. No, it's okay. So um, the other thing is um, I want to be a, try to be as kind of mm, complex as possible here. Mm-hmm. But um, my mom's oncologist at UCLA. How do you be an oncologist and not tell a person who has maybe two to four months to live? How do you not tell them she's dying? How do you, like, we would sit in sessions and the oncologist would look at me the whole time. And I would just stare at my mother to try to give them an unconscious cue to look Mm -hmm. at my mother. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable that they couldn't face her and say, I am so sorry you're dying and we have nothing to help glioblastomas. That's the truth. They could not face her and tell her the truth. And inside of that, they left her with false hopes that chemo would help. Chemo was horrible for her. Mm -hmm. And we did three days of one round. And I'm like, mom, is this a quality of life you want? And she's like, no, I had to call the oncologist and be like, we're stopping. He's like, well, that's not what your mother wants. I'm like, you have no (laughs) fucking idea what my mother wants because you don't even talk to her and you don't listen to her. Right. And, um, Palliative care, UCLA has an amazing palliative care. I said, can we go to palliative care? And he said, it's not time for that yet. Mm -hmm. I'm like, when would it be time? She is dying. So I don't, I got it. They're trained in a particular way. They're part of this whole system that's about drugs and denial. Mm -hmm. And I got it as some oncologists are amazing, but who we got, what they cost us and that they let me tell my mom over and over again that she was dying, that I had to have that capacity and luckily I have it, but that should not be the family's jobs.
If you've been wondering how you could support your Going to Die the podcast, well, now is your chance. And it won't take any more time than it takes for me to guide you through how to do it, held by Nick Jana's music right here and now. And all you have to do is go into your podcast app and rate and review the show. And I cannot tell you enough, even though I tell you again and again and again, I will never tell you enough how much it matters to get your support in this uniquely specific way. The other thing you can do is share this episode with someone you know will appreciate it. That is as simple as copying the link for this episode out of your app and sending it to them in a text. You can do that now too. And the last thing I want to say to you is thank you because you're doing the most important thing we could possibly hope for, which is listening to You're Going to Die, the podcast. about one of the most sacred things. It's like birth mm-hmm. and death and the sustainability of life are some of the most sacred things. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things in somatics, there's this practice that we have called facing. And it's pretty much <laughs> what it says, which is, you know, we all have these strategies in order to survive things, right? We deflect, we go into not denial, we run away, we fight against it. It's okay. Those are built into us as psychobiologies, right? Fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate. We just do those naturally. Mm-hmm. But then when we train, it's like we train to be present, right? We train and we practice to hold complexity. We cultivate depth inside of ourselves and our relationships, right? And one of the practices that we do to serve that is just this practice called grab, center, face. And the idea is you get grabbed, you get tweaked, you notice what happens in your mm. your soma, your mind body, right? We all have those re- that reactivity. We practice and we learn to recenter, which is really getting present, open, connected on purpose. And then from that we face, we face what is. And I'm very, very thankful that I had 25 years of practice in me before my mom got diagnosed. I'm deeply thankful for that, right? Mm -hmm. Because that let me day after day face as best as I could and keep inviting my mom to face. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if, if, if obviously we as community members, we as family members need to keep cultivating ourselves because often we're the ones holding each other in hardship. We're the ones trying to support each other's resilience. We're the ones trying to navigate trauma with each other. And often we're the ones holding death. And I feel like it is an accountability of those people who are talking about living and dying to have the capacity to face and to talk about death. Or for my oncologist, just fricking at least refer me to palliative care. They have some training in facing death. If you can't do it, refer me. So there's an accountability piece here for me. And obviously it's our broader culture as well, but there's an accountability in those of us who hold spaces, like you hold a space of death. And it's what you're inviting us into is like, you're going to die. Let's face this together. 
-hmm. And then how can we be in it that allows for me as much transformation possible, as much aliveness possible in, in, in facing death together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Stacy. Um, do you know how, you know, you, you, you've shared a bit about what it was like to hold the space. I'm just wondering mm. since they weren't doing that, can you talk a little more about how then you had to, was it like the, yeah. then I'm going to get her home and then I'm going to, you know, here's yeah. how I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say to everyone, if you haven't supported someone through dying in this intimate way before, it is like a learning curve. Like every day I was crawling up a cliff learning how to do this. And I so wish I could do it again with my mom because I know so much more. I know so much more than I knew the first time, but you, you don't get a second chance with someone, you know? And there's things I would do differently, just like you, you know, that you wish you could have been like, yeah, mom, you are dying, you know? And there's things, and I'm sorry, I just put words in your mouth. That's what I got from what you said. Um, if I could go back, if I could go yeah. back and sit next to me, sitting next to her, <laughs> yeah. I would say, okay, just, just, you know, be with this for a second. Like you don't need yeah. to move too quickly past this. I don't even know what would, should have been said right then, yeah. but she'd never asked me. So, but, but, so those words are, I, I, I do, uh, you can put those, yeah. those words to that moment for yeah. sure. And I love what you're saying about just being present, you know, with it. So, you know, I took mom's declaration seriously, right? That I don't want to die a bitch. I want to die with loving kindness. And she also, the thing she said is she just begged us, please don't put me in a nursing home. And I didn't want to put her in a nursing home. I visited one of the what's called Medi-Medi for poor people. It's Medi-Cal, Medicare pays for it. I visited one and I was like, she'll lay in a bed watching a TV all day. That is not life for her. And so we figured out the best house to bring her to was mine. And I also knew I could hold it and I knew my community could help hold it. So <laughs> my mom had so many prayers said for her. But when people would <laughs> visit, I mostly would say, hey, when you visit, it's oh, please dignify my mom. She's a whole person facing death consciously. That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. She is willing to talk about anything mm -hmm. and like bring anything up, but take her lead. And people would just sit in there and be like, God, how are you doing today? And she would answer honestly. I mean, it's one of the things I'm so thankful for is mom would be honest through all of it. Mm -hmm. And that gave us so much to work with. Or people, would, she'd talk about how scared she was to die. She would ask people, like one of my friends said, Jesus, your mom just asked me, what do I think happens when you die? And I was yeah. like, awesome, what'd you tell her? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think? <laughs> Let's have I'd the conversation. To about it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And one time when you and Morgan were there, I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, but um, you and Morgan and mom and I were talking about... Um, you know, uh, uh, like what, what the other side could be like. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, mom, what if it was just like a party? What if you're just going to a party? Yeah. And, um, she said, well, I, I like the parties here better. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. She did not want to die. <laughs> right. And then she sat with it for a minute and then she looked at all of us and she goes, you're all invited to the party on the mm-hmm. other side too. Do you remember that? Yes. And I was just like, and then Morgan said, do you think that's going to happen soon? And and mom was like, I don't know. Could be soon. Could be a long time from now. But she like, she made us know we were all going to die too. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Oh God. Join the party. Join the party. Join the party. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you talking about how she would it was clear when someone she didn't want someone to visit yep and i'm wondering is that this sort of new version of your mom the ways your mom was transformed would she always be that kind of person or was there a you know was was that a version of her being like more clear or honest or transparent yeah um and if not like i do want to talk about that you say the transformation of her from her choices Oh my God. This was a new version of her. I think my mom had a lot of the, so my mom was sexually abused as a kid, gender trained into being that 1950s female, lived inside of violence in our household, right? My household growing up. So it continued, you know, she went from an abusive dad to an abusive husband. And my mom had a lot of that, like, cover up, like, you're supposed to be nice all the time. And you could feel the power in her. You could feel the anger in her. Um, And, you know, my mom tried her hardest to heal. She tried her hardest to heal and transform with the resources she could access. Mm -hmm. And my sisters and I tried to help her as much as possible. But in her death, my mom transformed more in the five months of her dying it blew my mind. I didn't even know that was possible. And a very, very deep and close old friend of mine, one thing that he said about mom, because he spent a lot of time with us, he said, your mom just taught me how to die. She's taught me how to die. And um, she would talk about her trauma. It would come up. She would talk about it. She would process through feelings around it. She would, like you said, when someone left, I was like, how was that? And it was very few people, but she was, I don't want that person to come back. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, they don't Mm -hmm. have to come back. Mm -hmm. She was just really clear, not mean at all, but really clear about her boundaries. And I think one of the biggest transformations, which really was a transformation for our relationship too, is that when mom was afraid, it led with anger. And it led with negativity. And once I really got her commitment is to, um, I don't want to die a bitch. I want to die with loving kindness. I have to go back to the mantra, to the (laughs) chant. I want to die with loving kindness. When she would get enraged, Mm. I would go, mom, Mm -hmm. is, is this really what's happening? And remember loving kindness. And she's like, oh, right, right, loving kindness. Mm. And then what she learned is that, and what we learned is really under the rage was terror. Mm. And she's like, I'm afraid. And then she would just have all these tears of fear. And then she would go, I don't want to die. I'm going to miss so much. And then she would grieve. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that was our cycle I mean, mom didn't sleep much past four, which means I didn't sleep much past four. That was really our morning cycle. Mm. 
And the anger got less and less and less. In the last two months, there was no anger. She just was like, I, I woke up afraid. Mm. And the whole rage cover-up stopped. And then it was grief. And then we would do this Tibetan dying meditation called the Powa. And then we would do our gratitudes. That's how we started every day. Mm-hmm. And that was fucking for me too. Like that helped me survive what was mm-hmm. happening. That helped me process what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but her transformation and her honesty, I, I, I think I, I have one, one more story if it's okay. But, um, Charna again, Charna, the great connector, um, connected me with a palliative care doc that I never met in person but he would be honest with me and I would call him on the phone. He, he runs a center up in uh, Bolinas, California. I wasn't even in his district. I couldn't even hire him. <laughs> um, but I called him and I said, I don't understand what's happening. How is she going to die from glioblastomas? Will her heart stop? Like, what should I, what is happening? Because <laughs> no one at UCLA would answer the question. Mm-hmm. And he, he would just be honest. He's like, she's going to get less functional. She'll probably be a little bit more in and out of her mind, given where her tumors are. And then given what happens with minerals in your body, which I don't need to go into, nor do I remember correctly, but probably her heart will stop. And I'm like, okay, when? He's like, we have no idea when. Mm-hmm. But he, and I'm like, should I be doing anything for her that I'm not doing? Like, he just was a guide. It's like a dark tunnel if you've never done it before. And he was a guide. And then she lived long, she kept living and she kept eating and she was bed bound. And so I called him again. It was maybe months later and I told him where she was at. His name was Mike and I'm very thankful for him. I told him where she was at and he goes, this doesn't make any sense. And then he said, what, what meds are she on? And I was like, we don't give her many meds, blah, blah, blah. We talked about the meds. And then he's, he, we went back around in a circle again. Then he said, hold on, what daily meds is she on? And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, well, hospice has her on steroids mm-hmm. still. And he goes, oh, no, oh, mm-hmm. no, oh, no. And then he describes steroids to me, that steroids are a major upper mm-hmm. and that they make you hungry. She was barely eating. He goes, that's a steroids eating. And then he said, you know, to die... People need to let go deep, deep, deep inside themselves. And if she's on an upper every day, what the natural process wants to do is fall inside. Mm -hmm. And what the drugs are doing are pumping her up. Mm. And I'm like, why didn't hospice tell me this? Mm -hmm. Why is she on steroids still? Like, I don't know this. I'm not a doc, right? Mm -hmm. So then what was very difficult is me and my sisters had to decide whether to take her off steroids or not. Mm-hmm. And I talked to mom about it. And this was another one of mom's great sentences. I told her everything that this palliative care that Mike had told me. And I said, here's what you want to do to let go. Or here's what he says. And here's what the drugs are doing. And then she says, so if we take them off of me, if we take me off of them, she goes, I'm probably just going to get like shot off the end of a conveyor belt into nothing. Is that what's going to happen? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow, mom, I don't know. Maybe that's what's going to happen, right? There's so much mystery. And she was afraid. We talked about it again the next day. And then I think sometimes she said yes because she saw that I wanted to take her off of them. 
And that's one of my moments where I'm like, ah, oh, did I, did I, did I push her? Should I have lingered longer? But, um, we took her off. We took her off the steroids. And just like Mike said, he said, it'll be about 36 hours and they'll be out of her system and then things will change. And literally net at 36 hours, she fell into herself and she didn't open her eyes again for nine days. Mm. And I was so thankful. And then I was also like, oh no, all these people have come and said goodbye. And I never said goodbye because I didn't think it would change this fast, you know? Mm. And um, very, very thankfully on day 11, she opened her eyes again. And I got about six minutes with her. Mm. And um, then she was without food and without water for 14 days before she died. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Thanks for being a person I can share it with and a space that's not afraid of it. Mm.
losing loved ones too And then she'd gather herself And come home to that loving kindness When all the rest falls away The only thing left to say for MK by the Feelings Parade. Part of that group is Morgan Bolender. Morgan Bolender and Scott Farader, but Morgan Bolender, you may know from past episodes, but also from what I mentioned earlier, which is Morgan managing the Songs for Life program brought us together at the bedside of MK. And part of Songs for Life is an offering to hold us during that sacred time, but it's also a reminder. The program is meant to be a reminder of our legacy, like a way we'll be remembered. And while the hope is that we ever get a chance to have a musician be with you and you're dying at that time of life, there's another hope that a song emerges out of it. And it feels really special to have this song in this episode for MK and for Stacy. So lots of love to them and lots of gratitude for Morgan for her work with songs for life and lots of gratitude for getting to share that visit with her and have this episode of the podcast come full circle. Hello, Nick Jaina producer of you're going to die. The podcast. Hello. (laughs) Good to see you. You too. Oh my God, this is a record. It's always a record. I don't even want to say it. It diminishes it, but I'm just like really in it, you know? (laughs) 
just uh, feeling this fresh loss and then like revisiting this old loss anew and so I think no better time than to uh, pull a card from the death deck <laughs> everybody <clears throat> the death deck making hard things fun again <laughs> you guys ready all right this is it i just pulled a card i don't i just didn't look nick i didn't look did you see i just pulled one yeah okay nick saw <laughs> this is it malicious intentions is the title is the title of this card okay nick nick if you could haunt <laughs> If you could, <laughs> if you could haunt one of your enemies <laughs> after your death, who would you target? <laughs> How would you do it, and why? That's our death deck poll. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing! A lively game of surprising conversations. Nick, what's your answer? You know, uh, uh, even in death or especially in death, I would hope that I would be a constructive haunter, you know, that I wouldn't be <laughs> tormenting somebody yeah, and that I would be leading them to come to some realization mm. of their, of their errors, you know? So, yeah. and, and you don't have a lot of faculties as a ghost to like, you know, that we know of to, 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 to like move physical objects or whatever it, it, it seems a little difficult challenging yeah 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 um so i don't know maybe this is cliche but i would try to just like nudge a book off a shelf <laughs> <laughs> a, a certain a certain a certain book like <laughs> that you feel you want them to read to I mean, I, and it would have to be something they already own but maybe haven't like really read lately or read at all or yeah. really considered you know so i would try i think i think ghosts have that that ability at least um it might take like a year to to nudge it you know an inch at a time and then maybe the, the cleaning person pushes it back and you have to start over but i think i would gently nudge a book and then like try to get it to the right page and yeah would it be one of yours no 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 nothing like that just a just something that would help them to to see their the, the things that they've been um uh, unkind about <laughs> yeah can you just i don't need you to name a person but i'd like you to imagine someone and then tell us what the book title like if you have a book <laughs> I, I just want something a little more concrete and especially if you die before me and this book happens to emerge in my life i'll be like oh damn <laughs> i mean if i could write the book title it would yeah. be something like <laughs> what would it be <laughs> Oh my God. It would be like, um, you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room or some, something like that, you know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or no, I, okay. Most people have a Bible, you know, I would, I would push it open to the page about, um, looking at a speck in someone else's eye when you have a plank oh, in your own yeah, eye or something, you know, plank, yeah, I would try plank, to get yeah. that, that mm. out there and yeah. then you're going biblical wow you know it doesn't even need to be associated with me i i don't i don't need my name on this i don't need them to think like oh wow i did this person wrong just you know i just want constructive 
uh, you know, good for people. Yeah. A general message from the beyond. Yeah. Yeah. That, that feels good. I mean, you know, if that's the only version of an enemy you have and how you're going to deal with them, I feel like that's, that that's healthy. Well, what is an enemy really? I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're yeah, not living question. I mean, we're not in like a Shakespeare play. Like, like how often is an enemy? Like you see them across the street and they're like, Oh, yeah, get you, you know, who in my life fits it's that somebody category. who is caught, uh, caught up in some, some, something selfish and they're not seeing the ways that they're hurting somebody. I mean, yeah, those are the enemies quote unquote closest, that I have in my life. Yeah. The closest I could get to an enemy would be something like that where it's like, you hurt my feelings. I just want you to not hurt people's feelings like that. Here's a Bible verse. <laughs> <laughs> All my Bibles are on the lowest uh, shelf on the bookshelf. Just a heads up for when you get there. You're not my enemy. <laughs> no, I, you know, who knows what will happen before you go. I just want you to know where the Bibles are. <laughs> what, what would you do? No, no, I like that a lot. Hmm. I like your answer a lot. And I, I don't know that I, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I feel like the category is correct. There's not like an enemy in my life. Um, you know, I was thinking of like people that drive really close behind me, you know, when they're like <laughs> going over the speed limit to get by, like mm -hmm. if there's a way I could haunt them. Uh, yeah. with like a good driver's manual on their shelf, just like give that a nudge off off or like somehow yeah. get the web browser to open to like DMV, like retest site where you like learn how to drive. <laughs> like every time they open their, <laughs> their browser, it's like some reason that's the saved homepage. Oh, I had a thing today where uh, I, I was like on my phone and I had like earbuds in and then I changed, I turned it off the earbuds and my phone started playing a song that I've never heard before. Mm, yeah. The it, song. Yes. In an, in an app I've never used before. And I went through the thing where I closed every app and it was still playing. And oh, it was, yeah. it was in French. Uh. <laughs> and I was just this moment of what is happening? What is, wow. This? You may have had someone had played the death yeah. deck before so they died. And pulled I think this with, with, with technology, especially Bluetooth technology, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of potential for, uh, ghostly malfeasance. Well, uh, you know, Scott Ferreter, uh, who I mentioned is a part of the feeling spread. He would always say that his dad would visit him through electricity mm. and that we've increased the opportunities in the last hundred years plus for maybe the ghosts not to have to deal with the, the book push and start to <laughs> access the network of electricity and technology we've created. Which is funny because electricity has distracted us from those types of encounters. Ooh, Just yeah. being tuned into something at twilight or candlelight, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but also there, you, it's a good reminder that you can't escape that. Yeah. It's yeah. going to get in your Bluetooth and it's going to play you a song in French. Man, I should have actually remembered what the song was. It was probably yeah, an kind of important message. <laughs> yeah. Text it to me later. Um, yeah, you don't remember what the song was. Yeah, find that out. I want to know what the message is. Um, thanks, Nick. And thanks to the death deck. Like, literally, not not something we planned. Uh, went from crying hard in grief to laughing hard because oh, yeah. I pulled a death deck card. It's literally proven it makes the hard parts of life easier 
or more fun or approachable. Nick, I'm done. I'm done. I have nothing in me, <laughs> nothing left. I've cried all the tears, laughed all the laughs. Is there anything else that you want to ask or say before we finally say goodbye? I'll, Forever. I'll, I'll visit you in your dreams and I'll, I'll shove a book off and... <laughs> Thank you. Do you have books over your head where you sleep? Can it, is it possible to have one fall on you? Living in San Francisco, I've tried to avoid any hangings or That's probably a good loose idea. bits above my <laughs> skull uh, while I'm sleeping. But um, but lots of shelves, lots of opportunity for you, including Hitomi by uh, Nick Jaina. Um, that would be the real message if that book kept falling off the shelf. I'd be like, mm. I read it already. I loved it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Out now in audiobook. Oh plug audiobook guys check out nick jana's book that doesn't sponsor the podcast hitomi no discount code just buy it <laughs> okay thanks for listening everybody lots of love to stacy to mk to my dear friend uh to you nick to morgan and scott to morgan especially for this song and um check out our hospice and music program at songsforlife.info and it's free and we have versions of that offering that we can do online but just check out the website and send it to someone you love who needs that kind of offering right now bye bye